Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Amir Exel will join us to discuss uranium wars. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, of all the elements on the periodic table, uranium has perhaps the most intriguing and ultimately perhaps the most influential history for the development of modern geopolitical events. But the history of the science of uranium and ultimately the development of the nuclear bomb is still one of relevant interest. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Amir Exel. Dr. Exel is a research fellow in the Center for the Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University recipient of numerous honors and awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, and author of several popular science books, including The Jesuit and the Skull and Fermat's Last Theorem. His latest release, Uranium Wars, the scientific rivalry that created the nuclear age, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Exel, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be on your show. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you back. I believe you were on the program a little while ago for uh, The Jesuit and the Skull. And uh, this is certainly, I think, a very fascinating book about the history of uranium and its importance for uh, modern history. But I'm curious, do you think of all the elements, uranium has played the biggest role in uh, modern history? Well, yes. In the last hundred years, probably uranium is the most important because it changed civilization, not for the better, I think, that it created the nuclear age. And those of us who are my age or even a little younger probably still remember the Cold War and fallout shelters and the fears of nuclear war. And in fact, the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere has changed the environment, too. There's a lot more radiation in our environment that uh, didn't exist before all this started. Uh, for example, plutonium is an artificial element that doesn't occur in nature, and it's everywhere in the world now. So um, so there's a fear factor. Uh, the Cold War taught us. We, we lived in fear with fallout shelters and, and everything, and now there are new fears, and these are the fears of proliferation. And of course, there's the nuclear power, which also changed our lives, because uh, in France, for example, something like close to 90% of the electricity generated is nuclear generated. In the United States, it's only 11% because we have a more diversified base, but there are still 100 nuclear reactors in the U.S. Uh, generating power for public consumption, or 102, something like that. So, um, yes, uranium is probably the most important element. I mean, look, um, carbon is more important because it's in our bodies. <laughs> but, uh, in terms of something that humans did, uh, uranium is, is important. Right. And how was how uranium first discovered and its uh, potential first realized? Uh, uranium was discovered in the late 1700s. It was first isolated by somebody named Klepfort 
in uh, Germany, a chemist, and it was further re refined by the name of Peligo, and, and others discovered the radiation that's emanating from it. And in 1895, the world really began to change with the Röntgen's discovery of X-rays. So radiation was discovered then. Now, of course, the first type of radiation X-rays are artificial. They're made by machine, by kind of a, something like a light bulb that creates this radiation. And after this happened in 1895, all the many scientists that were very excited about it, physicists were excited about it, about it, and and were looking for naturally occurring radiation. And they found it within a few years. They found that uranium, which had been used as a dyeing agent for color in, in Roman glass as early as Roman times, potware and things like that, it was used for that. So it was really a, an, an innocuous kind of compounds were made from uranium. And then once the discovery was made of radiation, that changed the world. Uranium became extremely important, and physicists tried to understand it and extend our, our knowledge and also um, tried to do things with it. And, and how was it realized eventually that uranium had this uh, potential for generating so much energy? Well, the discovery was made in stages. At, at first, the radiation was discovered, and then Marie Curie, uh, obviously a very famous scientist, so uh, a Polish-born French scientist who got two Nobel Prizes in chemistry and in physics, and together with her husband, one of them, did immensely important work in Paris, uh, refining uranium that was brought to her from the mines. Like a, a ton of uranium was just dumped on her at her lab with, with uh, tree branches and rocks in it, and she she refined it, and she, from a ton of uranium, of uranium ore, she got a gram or so of radium, which is the outcome of, of uranium radiation, one of the outcomes, and for, it was a big discovery. And she also discovered polonium. And then there was more research that was done by her daughter, Irene Curie. And at the same time, this now we're in the 30s already, in 1932, uh, with the discovery of the neutron by Chadwick in Britain, scientists in three places, in three centers, in Rome, Paris, and Berlin, we're trying to see what happens if they irradiate uranium, the uranium nucleus, with a neutron, with neutrons. Now, the idea was to enlarge the largest, heaviest known element in, in nature, which is uranium. These scientists were trying to make bigger elements. So you kind of think of children playing, really, which was what these brilliant scientists were doing, and they couldn't do it. They thought they were doing it, and Enrico Fermi, who was the head of the Rome team, got a Nobel Prize for making transuranic elements, meaning elements beyond uranium, but they were wrong. They gave him the Nobel Prize for the wrong reason. Of course, he deserved it. He did very important work, but as was proven later, uranium doesn't really, at least in the process that they were following, bombardment with uh, neutrons, that doesn't produce elements larger than uranium. It actually splits uranium two pieces, and that's fission, and that's the source of the energy that, that you mentioned. It's the fission of uranium done in a chain reaction, and chain reaction was discovered in 1938, six years later, and that led to the nuclear bomb directly and to nuclear power generation. You also mentioned in your book uh, Lisa Meitner and Otto Hahn as being very instrumental in coming up with a theory of fission. 
Right. They were the Berlin group. So the group in Paris was the daughter of Marie Curie, Irene Joliot-Curie, and her husband, Frederick Joliot. In Berlin, it was Otto Hahn, very Germanic kind of German scientist, chemist, who was very proficient in what he did, very talented. And an Austrian Jewish woman, Lisa Meitner, who came from Austria to work with him in Berlin, women were not allowed in the academia at the time. And there were very few women who could make it. Even her family was against her studying. But she became a major physicist, a very important physicist. But her luck ran out. Uh, in 1938, the uh, Germans took over Austria, her native Austria, with the Anschluss, of course. And at that moment, because she was Jewish, she became stateless. So she had to flee. And she fled in the dead of night and went to um, first to Holland. She crossed into Holland. And then she went to Sweden, and she was then uh, separated from her partner of many years, Otto Hahn in Berlin. But the two of them working by letters, sending letters to each other. She was a refugee in Sweden. He was sending her letters about what was happening in their lab, which she couldn't control anymore if she wasn't allowed. Well, if she tried to go into Germany, she would be arrested. And she was the one person who understood fission. She understood and explained in a forest in Sweden where she met her nephew, Otto Frisch, who came to visit her. She was a refugee. She uh, learned She learned from the letters from Han. She learned what was happening in the lab. And from that, she deduced that him does undergo fission. She wrote it up as a paper, but she never got a Nobel Prize. Well, Han did get it for the same discovery. And uh, you recall that story, she could hike faster than her uh, nephew could ski. Right, she was 60 years old. She had her 60th birthday. It's really an awful story. Here's a woman who worked so hard to make scientists of herself against all odds. And just when she almost makes it, she has to flee. And But she's a very ambitious woman, and she's in good shape at 60. And her young nephew meets her there in the forest on Christmas Eve. They're going for he's He's on skis, and he's racing. She says, I'll race you. I'll run, and you ski. And she manages to keep up with him. So he's skiing in the woods, and she's running right next to him, and they're discussing uranium. And uh, then they sit down on a fallen tree, on the trunk of a tree, and she pulls out a piece of paper, and she says, this is what's going on. And she shows him how the, the uh, nucleus of uranium is like a, like a raindrop or, or like a drop of water that kind of wobbles, and then it breaks in two. It's not a tight ball like uh, had been thought before. And then she uses mathematics to explain it exactly, and she actually can come up with the amount of radiation, the amount of, of energy that comes out from uh, of the, the fission of uranium. She's a brilliant woman. Uh, he goes back, her nephew goes back to Copenhagen, where he works with Bohr, the famous uh, quantum pioneer. And Bohr, when he hears from Otto Frisch, the story says, he hits his head and says, of course, that's what's going on. Now, he goes to the United States. This is already 1939. After, uh, Well, he arrives around New Year's or so, the beginning of 1939. He meets uh, Fermi. Fermi was the head of the team in Rome, who in the meantime escaped uh, Europe with his wife, who was Jewish, and they were escaping Mussolini. They go to New York, and uh, Fermi is working at the uh, Columbia University. And Bohr comes to him and tells him the story of what happened in the woods in, in Sweden. But he tells him, don't talk about it, because these two need to publish first. And once a, a journal accepts their paper, the Meitner Frisch paper, Bohr 
Bohr and Fermi, and uh, also the American physicist John Archibald Wheeler of Princeton, whom I uh, met before he died. He just died recently, a couple of, a few years ago. He was instrumental in this work. And Leo Szilard, who was a Hungarian-born physicist. So the four of them meet at Columbia, and they understand the next step in the chain, which is chain reaction. They understand that neutrons can come out when uranium undergoes fission. And because neutrons come out, these neutrons can hit other nuclei of uranium and cause the rest of them to explode, to break apart, releasing energy. And that's what creates a nuclear bomb. And uh, in a more controlled way, this is what fuels a nuclear reactor. Mm. And the very first chain reaction was actually conducted right here at the University of Chicago. Right, exactly, under your football field at the University of Chicago. Enrico Fermi goes there. And in 1942, uh, he's able to create a chain reaction actually in practice, not only in theory. So the theory was developed in Columbia, at Columbia, and then he moves to the University of Chicago, and that eventually gets incorporated into the Manhattan Project. So the research there, he creates the first chain reaction, uh, and it's a big moment in history when that happens. Very tense, because Fermi was just an incredible physicist. And a lot of things, I understand, uh, like nuclear reactors in, in Illinois are named Fermi, after mm-hmm. Fermi, and uh, this Fermi lab. Uh, he was a major, major physicist. And uh, it, it was very dangerous because nobody knew what the critical amount would be. So they, they actually raised rods in this reactor, cadmium rods. And every time they raise them a little more, a millimeter higher or so, there's more radiation, more radiation. They can test. They, they want to reach the moment where it goes critical, but not too much. Not not to go so it doesn't explode. And they managed to do it. I mean, uh, Chicago could have been blown up. You could have had a major disaster had Fermi not been a genius that he was. Well, lucky for us, uh, he didn't blow up the campus. And then how quickly was the research then incorporated into the Manhattan Project and used to make the bomb? Right away. This was a major step, but you see, the way physics works is that there's theory and there's practice or, or, you know, experimentation, and the two go always hand in hand. So a theoretician will derive some kind of an idea, and then uh, experimentalists will prove it. And that's how they generate Nobel Prizes, by the way. Uh, you come up with some outlandish theory, like there's, you know, a boson. Everybody knows about the Higgs boson now that, that they're searching for at CERN, and at Fermilab, by the way. Uh, Fermilab may beat CERN because CERN is bogged down with all kinds of problems, and Fermilab, with its lower power, may reach it. So at any rate, you've got the theory in one hand, you've got the experimentation in the other. So the theory was developed uh, at Columbia with these four great scientists meeting together over lunch and talking about and saying, well, maybe we could have a chain reaction. Then Fermi goes to Chicago to uh, UR and, uh, and does the experimentation, proves that it's possible. At that moment, the door is wide open for the Manhattan Project. So it's a direct outcome of that uh, point in time. And uh, much has been made also of the German effort to obtain the bomb, and you sort of contend that they were very close, but if not for a few circumstances, that undermined their attempt. Right. I met uh, Werner Heisenberg at Berkeley in 1972 when I was uh, just an undergrad there. He came and talked to us, and he was, many many scientists left Germany. He was the only one who stayed behind. Otto Hahn remained too. He was a chemist who worked uh, with Meitner, of course. The, the only major physicist who remained is Heisenberg. There's also von Weizsäcker and a few others, but no great physicist. He's the only one. The rest left because uh, many of them were Jews, and they were persecuted, and they came to the United States. And ironically, 
technically they helped America build the bomb. Had Hitler not been as, as evil as he was, uh, it would have been worse for society because these Jews might not have left, and who knows, maybe Hitler would have come closer to a bomb, but he didn't. So Heisenberg, when I met him, he gave us a talk at, at Berkeley, and he talked about quantum mechanics, which is where he made his, his name. But he didn't mention a thing about his wartime effort uh, to help Hitler make a bomb. Now, we don't know still whether his heart was in it or whether he was just going along and pretending to do the work and really subverting the effort, which is what he claimed later. At any rate, he built a reactor that's sim- very similar to Fermi's reactor in Chicago. He built one in, in a cave under a church in a village called Heigerloch in Germany, and there were no controls there at all. It was just an open pit with radiation spewing out of it. Americans who came and Brits who came there after the war to dismantle it when when they discovered it, they were they were shocked by how dangerous it was. So uh, he built this reactor there and tried to. Um, to there, there are two ways to make a bomb. One is uh, you run a reactor for a while and you produce plutonium, or you use uh, you refine uranium and make a bomb out of uranium. The bomb that uh, was dropped on Hiroshima is made of uranium. And Nagasaki was a plutonium device. So uh, he was working in that direction of making plutonium in, in the lab, although they didn't quite understand what they were doing. And in other places in Germany, they were working on refining uranium, and they had, they had all the know-how, much of the know-how, not all of it, but they had much of it. And Hitler actually made another mistake. He diverted all the resources that originally were to, to go to the nuclear bomb project. He diverted them to the Penemunde project, which created the V1 and V2 rockets that trained terror in Britain. Now, many people died because of these rockets, but uh, at least Hitler didn't get a nuclear bomb because he just didn't have enough uh, financial ability to support both projects at the same time. Wow. Also, you, you argue about the decision for the U.S. to actually use the bomb in Japan and actually dropping two bombs to send a message to the Russians. Right. I started writing this as, as a science book because I'm a science writer, and the uh, American Institute of Physics gave me a grant, which was very kind of them, to go to their archives in Maryland. So I got to spend a lot of time in archives and see documents that nobody or a few people have seen before. Some of these documents and from other sources, such as the National Security Archive, are actually available on the web. And these documents from the NSA archive include recently declassified ultra-top-secret documents. So it doesn't get any better than that in terms of secret classification. Ultra-top-secret. And these are the results of a spying operation on Japan during the Second World War. They're called the Magic Spying Operation. People can actually see these documents online by going to the NSA archive. And they present a story that's recently been declassified, so it's a story that nobody has heard before, and that is that the United States knew that the Japanese were planning to surrender just before Hiroshima. What we have are communications between the Japanese government, the highest level of the Japanese government, really, and their ambassador in Russia. And they were trying to sue for peace. Uh, They were pretty desperate. They wanted to end the war, and that's what comes out of these documents. Now, um, Truman went to Potsdam in Germany, met with the Allies, and, and issued the Potsdam Declaration, which demanded unconditional, immediate surrender of Japan, removal of the emperor, and basically surrender immediately with no conditions at all. We'll dictate all the conditions. And the declaration says the alternative is utter and complete destruction of Japan. 
Now, he knew what he was talking about because the bomb was ready at the time. And on July 16, 1945, the bomb had been tested at the Trinity site in the New Mexico desert. So he knew the power of the bomb, and he could issue this declaration. The Japanese had no idea. So they were already trying to sue for peace, but once they were issued this declaration, they didn't respond fast enough. Now, America, the, the, the U.S. government knew that they wanted to surrender. They could have perhaps showed them the power of the bomb by demonstrating it on a desert island or just in the ocean. Some scientists suggested, and actually there were petitions at the time. The Szilard petition, remember Szilard was one of the four scientists who came up with the idea of chain reaction. Uh, he, he worked in Chicago, by the way, Leo Szilard, a Hungarian-born physicist, very bright. Uh, he issued a petition to the president of the United States, but he issued it before, just before FDR died, so it uh, may have not reached Truman. 68 scientists, most of them in Chicago, the University of Chicago and part of the Manhattan Project directed from Chicago, urging the government, the petition urged the government not to use the bomb on people, but to demonstrate it first. But these calls were not heeded. And on uh, the 6th of August, Hiroshima was bombed. And three days later, before the Japanese really had any chance to respond, I mean, three days is no time for anything during a war, Nagasaki was bombed. Uh, that second bombing is, uh, I don't think many people disagree that probably it wasn't necessary. In fact, the airplanes went up, and uh, there was a cloud cover, and they couldn't reach their target, and they finally dropped it on the outskirts of Nagasaki. So it was a botched effort, I think. And, and ever since then, really, the legacy of the atom bomb has been the Cold War, and that pretty much shaped the latter half of the 20th century. Right. As you mentioned when you asked the question, uh, the, the, I believe from reading a lot of material in archives, memos and meetings between Stimson, who was Secretary uh, of War, and Truman, that the Russians were very much on the administration's mind. So people were worried uh, in the U.S. government were worried about the Russians, and the thought was that uh, if we show them what we have, maybe we can ward off uh, an arms race. But actually the opposite happened because the Russians got their own bomb and we had the cold war and now we have proliferation and really announced threat of small dirty bombs and terrorists getting hold of these things that too that too yes uh, it, once the genie is out of the bottle it's hard to put it back what then is uh, uranium's future as you talk about in the book Right. Um, I, I don't like uh, uranium because, uh, well, bad things happen. Even, even with civilian nuclear, peaceful nuclear power is not that peaceful, not that great, because uh, we had Chernobyl, the explosion of the nuclear reactor in Ukraine in 1986 that resulted in an in, in amount that is like thousands of times the radiation of Hiroshima into the atmosphere, according to some estimates. Certainly many people uh, got cancers because of that. So even civilian peaceful nuclear power is not free of problems. And you mentioned a dirty bomb that can be a pretty terrifying thought. So. Um, the future of uranium, I think there is a future because it's a resource that exists in large amounts. There are parts of Australia and they have a lot of uranium in the ground and it's being mined in Canada and in Africa. 
these are the three major locations of, of you know, deposits of uranium. And so it's a resource that creates energy that doesn't produce carbon uh, emissions. And that's great because it reduces global warming and it can be a, a wonderful resource, I think, but it has to be managed very carefully because we don't know what to do with the nuclear waste yet. Uh, there's no perfectly safe disposal method. And you mentioned the dirty bomb. You have to watch out for everything that's produced in a nuclear reactor and safeguard it in, in a perfect way. You don't want it to fall into the wrong hands. So uh, terrorism and, and the, the danger of accidents it hasn't been driven down to zero yet. I mean, American reactors are much, much safer than the Russian reactors like the one in Chernobyl. They have containment uh, building on top of it. And the one in Chernobyl that exploded, no containment. It just went right into the atmosphere and it burned for days. I mean, it's crazy what they did. And they never even told their population to watch out. They had a May Day parade. It happened on April 28th, the accident, early in the morning. They were doing some testing and they shut off the emergency system. I mean, who does something like that? You know, you work in a nuclear reactor, you shut off the, the alarms, you shut off the emergency system and you play around with the system. It exploded and then for a few days later they had a May Day parade in, uh, you know, because they were communists at the time and it was a very important holiday for them and thousands of people were on the streets of uh, Kiev and all these parts of uh, Ukraine and they were exposed to very large amounts of radiation. So you have to find a way to, we have to find a way to make nuclear energy safe. But if we can make it safe and safe from terrorism and safe from, from any uh, kind of problem like that, then it could be a very good source. I mean, we're already using it as, as, as a source, but uh, we should make it safer and then uranium will have a good future. Hmm. Uh, well, I'm curious, we're running slightly out of time. I wonder if you just have some final words on the uranium wars. My big story is about proliferation. That's the other uh, the other aspect of it. Right now, proliferation is a major problem. I would say probably bigger than uh, safety of nuclear reactors. I mean, you have countries like Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, and who knows who else. Uh, you don't even want to think about groups that are not governments that may be trying to get nuclear weapons. And I think the, the world, the governments of the world must do something immediately to try and stop this because all you need is one nuclear weapon and uh, the world will never be the same again. So uh, this is the number one problem facing us is what I believe. Uh, Dr. Exel, I do want to thank you very much. The new book is called Uranium Wars, the Scientific Rivalry that Created the Nuclear Age. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. And you were just listening to Dr. Amir Exel discussing the Uranium Wars. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic fission or fizzle. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are more fissionable or if they're just going to fizzle out and little reason why. Dr. Exel, you ready to play the game? Yes. Okay, person number one, fission or fizzle, Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Fission. 
the, you just go to buy the Apple stores and you're amazed. <laughs> the, uh, no, nobody can sell computers and, and uh, iPods and, and other uh, devices the way uh, Steve Jobs does. And I guess he just had an operation for cancer, so I wish him well. I, I think, think he's a genius. I think uh, Apple makes uh, amazing products. I mean, I don't own one. I use PC, but, <laughs> but my wife loves Apple and my daughter does, and she's never anywhere without her iPhone and her iPod. So uh, I admire him, so I'd say Fission. Okay, very good. Uh, number two is the quarterback, Brett Favre. Uh, I'll have to plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> no comment, huh? <laughs> no. Uh, okay. Uh, number three is conservation himself, Al Gore. Oh, uh, certainly fission. It works well for him because he's against uh, global warming. He's championing against global warming, and fission helps reduce global warming. So he's fission. Okay, very good. Uh, number four is uh, the talk show host, Jerry Springer. I'd say fizzle. All right, and finally, number five, President of the United States, fission or fizzle? Fission. Because I wish him luck. He's, got, he's inherited a world that uh, is so dangerous and has all these uh, problems in it. Uh, he needs all the luck he can get. So uh, I'd say fission. All right. Well, very good. Uh, well, Dr. Exal, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game, the Rocketron <laughs> 5000, and, and, of course, talking about your book, which is Uranium Wars, the scientific rivalry that created the nuclear age. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.